The Scoobalacast. Listen up, normies. It's time to talk some shit. This is the Scoobalacast, where we talk holy shit about what it means to follow Jesus in the sacred chaos of the 21st century. My name is Benjo. I'm a 20-something anarcho-whatever pastor committed to creating safe spaces for figuring out faith, doing the work, and getting up to holy mischief wherever and whenever we need to. So for the next chunk of time, I'm just a talking head on a podcast, and you're listening to this for some reason, so good luck to you. Let's get into it. White Jesus to prop the empire yep. up the binary You rendered under Caesar All cause your cathedrals needed more cedar You sold another neighbor A seat at the table All for the major goal to hold the scrolls in your favor Share gospel with the slaves With precision and arrows With a 6.30 Welcome back it's time for the Scuba Cast. This is your host, uh, Benjo, aka Scuba Paul, aka aka I just yelled in your ears, aka 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 um, Joe Rogan uh, two. I'm Joe Rogan two. I just found this um, Instagram filter that places me in Joe Rogan's studio as Joe Rogan, and it gives me um, an ass chin. It's like a butt chin, but um, it looks uh, particularly assy. And um, just some stubble. And uh, I look like Joe Rogan. And honestly, I've never felt better. I feel great. Um, I think uh, I really can pick up where Joe Rogan has left off. Um, which is, um, in Dumbtown, USA in, in, uh, in, uh, Batshit County. <clears throat> anyway, I think that's cool. Um, and, uh, I don't know what the levels are on this thing. This is bad. I didn't sound check. Um, I think this is fine. Let me see. Is this fine? I think this is fine. I think we're fine. I think we're in a good zone. Well, welcome back to the Scuba Cast. America's, um, it's not their favorite because they don't know about it because I don't give a shit if anybody listens to it. Um, and I will never um, charge you guys for this because um, um, I don't ever want to charge for something like this because um, I'm not trying to market lifestyle to you. Um I just think it's important. We should do it. And I should do this too. So I won't. Anyway, I'm never going to charge you. That's the point. <clears throat> Scuba Cast is back. America's uh, favorite podcast, if they knew it existed. Um, second only to um, uh, Chairman Joe. Um, Rogan, not Biden. And um, uh, we're just going to get right the fuck into it. It's been a little bit. I gave uh, a little hiatus after Advent and um, excited to be here. Everything is chill and swag and we're we're ready to go. Um, again, Scuba Cast, at least season two, is where we try and 
engage the system of capitalism through theological and ethical lenses from, you could call it a faith perspective, but just a a critical historical lens with a little bit of theory chucked in. So we're going to get right the fuck into it. We're going to be talking about, we're going to do a a short two, I don't know, I fucking did that. I hate myself. Um, Just kidding. I love myself. Um, uh, (laughs) shit. We're going to be starting a two, a short two part series. It's going to be centered around the book of Ruth, which if you've never read these four chapters in a lens, other than the one where Ruth and Boaz, they locked eyes at the field, the barley fields. And they're like, Oh my God, you're so hot for the Lord. I just want to love you so bad and kinsman redeemer you oh my god that's so like if you do like ruth and boaz is often portrayed as this like christian love story um if you've only seen it in that lens um don't even get me started on that the real love story of um the book of ruth is ruth and naomi don't even get me started on that, but um, if you've only read it in that like kind of Christian romance novel um, sort of light, um, or if you've never heard of the term social reproduction, then this podcast is for you because I'm going to call it something having to do with social reproduction and Ruth. I usually name the podcasts as I upload them, but that's what we're going to be talking about. The main premise of this series um is that while communities and economies, including all of the capitalist wealth accumulated by the richest people throughout the world are fundamentally dependent on reproductive work. All communities are dependent on reproductive work, meaning namely having children, having people to take up the mantle after us. Um, We can call this um, uh, among in, in leftist theory, Uh, They call this the labor of social reproduction. So capitalism imposes this people-making labor on some people and then not on others. It devalues this people-making labor. It renders it insignificant and then it hides it from our sight um, in things like parenting, like the dad doesn't do this and the mom does this, right? And so uh, we hide it from our sight when we make economic transactions. It's, um, uh, it's, It's for capitalism's benefit. Um... So, all right, reproductive work is regulated, it's devalued, then it's hidden. Um, But to really drive the home the point, I'll put it like this. None of the profits taken by multimillionaire and billionaire employees, none of the big bucks acquired by the banks, private investors and developers, none of the rents that landlords extract privately, not a single dime of any paycheck that you and I have ever received as as workers would ever happen without reproductive work, without the labor of social reproduction, without someone ensuring we have the most basic means to survive into the future. That's not just the birthing, but that's the raising and making sure that they become of working age. It's that it's important for economies that serve the interests of the ruling elite. It's that important. It's fundamental. It's foundational. It's that foundational to you and I's relational well-being and even existence that there are people to be in community with. Yet reproductive work takes a, a lot of people, a lot of energy, and a lot of effort. And so the potential danger of acknowledging the significance of this labor, the importance of this work, the value and meaning 
and well-being this work brings to all of our lives is that if reproductive work was more democratically and communally shared, if it was collectivized, if it was treated as a central and meaningful work in our communities uh, for men and women and non-binary, um, if it was... Uh, uh, our profit-oriented values, our capitalist flows of private wealth and power would end up being transformed into something we would not recognize. And as you can imagine, the small group of, uh, of elites and few families who are currently at the top of the global economy don't like the sound of that. <clears throat> it affects the bottom line. It, it, it cuts into the profit margins, which is why they need to keep it, uh, keep it up, not just imposed on some groups, not just devalued, but also hidden right? Okay, so that's the setup. But don't worry, because we're, we're going to take our time, and I'm going to do my best to give a little intro um, to these concepts in these two episodes. Um, uh, I'm learning with you, we're learning together. And I don't think I say that enough in the podcast, because we're, we're a shit cast and um, just sort of like the genesis of this project, people don't listen to it. But I, we're learning together. We're talking about our world, so let's keep going. We're going to try and spend a good chunk of time next month or in the coming month on capital's primary goal, but it's worth stressing now that the reason why capitalism wants to pull the wool over our eyes concerning reproductive work is because at the end of the day, at the end of the month, and now for some, at the end of every nanosecond, capital has to grow. Profits have to increase. Wealth has to expand. Um, wealth and power have to expand. Um, those are the two interlocking motives behind this all. Capital will do everything it can to legitimize and normalize its pursuit of profit maximization, no matter the costs levied onto others. And these are two episodes that are going to focus on just one of the many things capital does for the sake of profit. The regulation, devaluing and disguising of uh, sometimes low wage, but mostly completely unpaid labor of social reproduction. In the next episode, we'll talk about a bunch of uh, about this people making labor. But for today, how might the story of Ruth help us think about capitalism's tendency to enforce this kind of work, render insignificant, and then magically hide it underneath the advancement of others? Um, just as an aside, there's this new show on HBO called Station Eleven. It's based on uh, a graphic novel, and it's a post apocalyptic world. And part of its, um, I guess social critique or its area of examination and observation is how an old world and a new world come to be reconciled, especially with, um, uh, as it comes to children and adults and what, what people making labor, um, produces the kind of adults that go to war and what's, what sort of people making labor um, needs to happen in order to make children grow up to be, um, loving, beautiful, trusting members of society. And so, uh, this is actually a trope in a lot of movies. Children of Men is another good movie to think about. But anyway, on to the book of Ruth. I'm just going to take a sip of this coffee. That's my little asthma, um, portion of this podcast for you. Thank you so much for listening. Um, for 50 bucks, I'll make a whole episode that's ASMR. <clears throat> uh, quote me on that. Uh, Ruth is depicted as a loyal companion and servant to everyone who wields power over her without hesitation. This is, this is, uh, 
pretty uniform across in, in, interpretations of Ruth. Ruth joyfully submits to Naomi's every whim. Ruth is also depicted as desiring of Boaz, the powerful owner of land and labor. But um, would it be that difficult for us to imagine a world in which, on one hand, the work of an impoverished female immigrant who is removed for her com from her community and land of birth is imposed upon her and enforced, while on the other hand, her contribution is devalued and disguised? So I think we're going to have to take a look. So a famine has struck the land of Judah. And so in their vulnerability, Elimelech, the patriarch of his family, and his wife, Naomi, flee with their children in search of something pretty important, food. And they end up in a place called Moab. To the ancient Judean audience, Moab would have represented everything, not Judah. Moab was the antithesis of Judah. It was not populated with the people of Judah. It was not ruled by the God of Judah. Um, in our story, Moab um, is a symbol not only of otherness, but of inferiority. Um, and this Moab by inferiority, it by, uh, is inferior and other, that, that will also be prescribed to Ruth here, who is Moabite, um, in a little bit. And this is the main lens of this story. I want us to dialogue with a story through that lens of, of Ruth as a Moabite, not as somebody being grafted in to the, uh, the family of Judah, but as, a, as an other and how the, the family of Judah views and treats another. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I have gas. <laughs> I was trying to hold it in there, but then I just felt that I should be vulnerable with you. So while Elimelech and Naomi were living in Moab, the two sons, according to verse four, took Moabite wives. I don't know why I said it like that. My wife, Moabite wives. But it wasn't long after Elimelech and the two sons died, leaving Naomi a childless widow. So right off the bat, Naomi, the Judean, becomes a childless widow and inherits her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and, Naomi, uh, and uh, Ruth. Naomi decides to return to the land and people of Judah, and the author tells us that the, that the only graciously encourages her daughters-in-law to stay in their homeland and um, find new husbands for the sake of their own security. It's their culture, cultural thing. Orpah, on the one hand, whose name means back of the neck, kisses her mother in law goodbye. And um, sort of the readers of this would be like, oh, typical Moabite, no loyalty, right? But uh, Ruth, whose name means friend and companion, surprises everyone, right? So Orpah is named Orpah in the story most likely because she turns her back and you see the back of her neck after a little kissy, and then she's like, oh my God, you're just like every Moabite. But then Ruth, whose name is friend and companion, uh, guess what, is a friend and companion and surprises us all by clinging to Naomi. If you've ever heard of this story before, you've heard it as a lesson about loyalty to family, uh, friendship or obedience. And I want to acknowledge that loyalty is a prominent theme, but my read is a little bit probably more raunchy than most people, but we won't get into that. And I want to, I just want to acknowledge that loyalty is the prominent theme throughout this text. And, um, we, uh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't even say raunchy. It's just, the, I think it's a little bit more romantic than that. Um, and I want to acknowledge that loyalty is a primary theme, but when we consider Ruth as a Moabite, as a Moabitess, her inferior otherness, um, might we imagine a less than dignifying relationship between Naomi and her foreign-born immigrant daughter-in-law, right? 
While the author paints the immigrant female daughter-in-law as someone who is loyal, obedient, and friendly to all who govern her, what if the relationship between Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz wouldn't be as pretty as the author suggests in actuality, or as our typical like rom-com reads are? At least not from the perspective of Ruth, on the one hand. The story could be read as an encouragement to welcome non-Judean immigrants into the community. You could. I want to acknowledge that, but on the other hand, this is how I want us to approach the text. Our approach will be from Ruth as an other. The book of Ruth could illuminate for us the ways in which the labor in bodies of people, but mostly women in vulnerable positions like Ruth, are often enforced, rendered insignificant, and erased from the stories we tell ourselves and our communities about. Chapter 1, it can be said, is not all about Ruth. Chapter one is all about Naomi, the childless widow, who having lost her standing in the community is returning to the land of Judah with a childless daughter in law at her service. Although Naomi herself is an incredibly vulnerable position, she's in one, power would not be mutual or equal between Ruth and Naomi, as we'll see more clearly here in a little bit. All the decision-making power lies in the hands of Naomi, so much so that Ruth's labor power and her body are under the governance of Naomi. In chapter two, Ruth sets out to secure some food, uh, the necessary means of survival, which we know and love, the basics for her mother and herself, um, because um, as we all know, without stuff like food, we die. We do not survive into the future without food. We would not be able to reproduce. And while the author paints a pretty picture of a loyal servant, diligent, a worker, a real go-getter who takes initiative, and that's usually what's highlighted in most uh, traditional reads, um, at least Western reads. Um, this is terribly dangerous. It's a terribly dangerous working condition she enters herself into. Can we think of any reason why an author might tell a story about a hardworking foreign-born woman who gleefully meets the needs of her owner? I mean, I couldn't help but think of the abundance of us, uh, of our literate, of U.S. literature, uh, portraying black female slaves and domestic workers as happy, like mammies or black males, particularly before Reconstruction, as um, docile, loyal samos laboring in these fields, and they're just happy-go-lucky and singing songs. And as a young unmarried woman, um, this would have been incredibly risky for Ruth. Um, I think the way we portray. Um, uh, exploited labor in our kind of cultural stories is trying to alleviate that sort of guilt. And what we should see is that Ruth is subsistence. Perhaps instead of Ruth deciding to spend her entire day in the fields for Naomi and for herself, as verse two tells us, maybe that would have actually been a decision made only by the person in charge and um, uh, whose roof that person is under, right? Ruth is under the heat of the sun here, picking up scraps left over in the fields for people who ran into some kind of surplus or excess population, much like the disposable people we talked about in our episodes uh, of on Tamar. We're introduced to the main character of chapter two. It's a wealthy and powerful patriarch named Boaz, right? Boaz is a prominent owner of land and labor. He is the lucky guy, hashtag blessed. He inherited his father's power. I worked hard for this, blah, blah, blah. I live uh, in Orange County and I, I've been working since I was 16, but I've been working for my dad and my dad, but you know, like it's, it's that he's, he's, he's privileged. And so now Moab, uh, Boaz, sorry, has some specific roles to play in this community. And one of his roles is to tell people what their work will be and how to do it. 
you might say that he owns the necessary means used in the process of production. That's to put it in Marxist terms. He owns the land, the tools, and the materials used by his workers and family members. And Boaz has power over all the fruits produced by his servants and his family members labor and distributes it however he sees fit. So the, all the majority of people spend part of their day producing their own subsistence and means of survival. The great and powerful Boaz lives off the fruits collectively produced by other people's labor. And if it were not for the Jubilee laws preventing him from running his field over again, he would be making more. Right? The, if you recall in the Old Testament, um, in, in, in the laws, uh, in the Torah, you are not to redouble over your field. If you missed a part of your harvest, then you leave that for um, gleaners, which are the foreigners, the poor, who will come and eat off of your scraps. Even though it's like that, it's not lost. It should not be lost on us, right? Um, of course, Boaz... Um, is only doing what is uh, customary, customarily his right, right? That's the customary right of his time. Of course, he doesn't privately possess stuff like we do today. Our modern Western um, conceptions of property would have been unthinkable for folks in ancient Mesopotamia, but I think it's fair to say that a good bit of authority and power and wealth is concentrated into the hands of Boaz. In chapter two, the author spends a lot of time painting a picture of this great landowner and labor as generous and compassionate toward the foreign-born servant of the recently returned widow. He even assumes the role of protector, we might even say possessor of Ruth's body. Um, her reproductive capacity and sexuality by telling his male servants not to sexually harass or assault her. Apparently, as the boss, Boaz has the power to say whose body is off limits and whose body is free to be seized by less powerful men. And after Ruth is depicted as grateful for Boaz, uh, his blessings uh, and interest in her, uh, the, uh, the Moabite returns to her Judean owner with all the fruits of her day's labor. Naomi eats... Um, to her fill and then gives the leftovers to Ruth. I mean, it's really hard to unsee. So how nice, again, something I want us to pay attention to us uh, to here is that despite this book being named Ruth, Naomi really is the main character of chapter one uh, and Boaz is the main central figure of chapter two. Ruth, of course, has an important role in the story, a role of an impoverished, childish, laboring daughter-in-law. But these first two chapters have really been about the return of a widow who brings with her a childless female servant from another land and a powerful patriarch who takes notice of the widow's uh, and servant, the widows and the, uh, the servant of the widow. And now the stage has been set. Naomi, who is no longer seen as respectable and honorable person in her community is back in Judah and has under her control, a childless foreign born daughter-in-law who is a Moabite, who is lesser and inferior. Um, Boaz, a prominent owner of land and labor has noticed Ruth. So let's see what happens next. He gets the hots for her. And chapter three starts off with Naomi devising a plan. You see, as a childless widow, childless widow, Naomi has lost all security and sense of community in her life. She is not honorable and dignified in her community without children, particularly male children. So understandably, in such a vulnerable and desperate position, Naomi is ready to do what she has to do in order to regain access both to the necessary means of survival and to her sense of belonging. <clears throat> and so what does she do? 
This is what she does. Naomi tells herself, uh, tells her, uh, tells Ruth to clean yourself up and put on something nice. She says Boaz will be at the threshing floor tonight where the barley gets separated. He's probably going to have such a fun time. He'll end up drunk and passed out. So Naomi tells her daughter-in-law to wait until he's asleep, sneak in, and verse four says, uncover his feet and lie down. Now uh, to uncover someone's feet and lie down with them is not the same thing as taking somebody's socks off and then like taking a nap next to them. After a long day's work, it's more like ripping their pants off. Um, Naomi knows that Boaz is going to be drunk, and so she sends Ruth to have sex with him in hopes that this would get Ruth in with Boaz. And by the way, the author tells us Boaz is pleasantly startled, right? He seems, it's so it seems to have worked as uh, well as become clear in chapter, this becomes clear in chapter four. Basically, Ruth is a message from Naomi to Boaz and the message of this uh, take this girl as your wife and you can get the land that belongs to my dead husband, Elimelech. I'll probably get a son, which will restore to me a place of respect in this community and keep me tied to the land of my husband. And you will get more land and potentially a male heir, which means more power for you. Um, more help. Maybe even a king will come from your lineage. Right. Um, that would never happen for a per person like Ruth without, um, the direction of Naomi. Um, the inferior, because Ruth is a Moabite, the inferior other. And we can imagine that this would not be about loyalty to Naomi, right? Nor is this a gross 21st century Hollywood film where against all odds, two individuals of two different classes end up falling in love with, with each other and they meet each other in the field. And they're like, oh my God, you're so cool and like loving the Lord and you don't deny Jesus. Right? That's not at all, right? Ruth definitely didn't just take a drunk guy's sandals off and lay down at some stinky feet. Ruth is a survivor. Both her body and her mind and her capacity for a relationship, her labor is seen as a means through which other people get to go where they want to go. She is not some passive object though, without agency, without a resistant spirit. Ruth is a fighter, but she is forced to fight in these particular conditions. And so Naomi sends Ruth to Boaz because she's got her own plans. Um, uh, Bob's, uh, Boaz, uh, Bob's, Boaz receives a message and likes what he can get out of it. Um, right. It's so it's fundamental to both Naomi's and, and Boaz's plans. The well-being and personhood of the Moabite is not the concern of these relationships. Ruth is more like a pillar being used to prop up other people's kingdoms. In chapter four, everyone's plans come to the forefront. Boaz brings together all of the other major players in the community. We might say the biggest bosses, landlords and developers among people. He sent down some and says to the guy next in line for Elimelech's property, look, go ahead and take the property. But if you take it, you got to take the Moabite uh, as a wife too. And, pr and to preserve his own name, the guy is like, no way you take it. And that's exactly what he does. Boaz, the Judean owner of labor and land is really the main character of the majority of the final chapter. He organizes a meeting. He celebrates his big win with the people of Judah, right? Bless his name and his house by asking the Lord to give him children through Ruth the Moabite. And then once Ruth gives birth to a child, the neighborhood comes together and reminds us of who this story was about in the first place. In verse 17, we read, a son has been born um, uh, and named, they named him Obed, right? He became the father of Jesse, the father of David, through Ruth, Naomi, and the people of Judah have been redeemed. 
So sure, Ruth is said to be more to Naomi than seven sons, but she gets her whopping Mother's Day meal and flowers because of the difficult and strenuous work she did under the command of Naomi. No one really cares about the immigrant, the female worker. She's just needed by Boaz and Naomi in the community to get their happy ending. Capitalism has a way of requiring a, a demanding and demanding the reproductive work of particular people while simultaneously disguising their labor and their contributions behind labor that produces profits. It uses, as we'll talk about more next time, social constructs like gender and race and citizenship as well um, as hyper-individualistic ideologies to regulate and hide people making labor of social reproduction. And it does this in order to rationalize and justify the unjust economic systems and unequal flows of power that the ruling elite, the 1%, the ultra-rich, benefit most from. So I'm going to say that again. Reproductive work is systemically enforced, devalued, and hidden because it is more profitable, more beneficial, not for you, not for your family, uh, but your employer. Capitalists, financial capitalists, and landlord capitalists who extract wealth produced by everyone else. In our next little uh, installment, we're going to talk about um, talk all about what social reproduction entails, how it is magically disguised from our side, um, why it is disproportionately expected of one side of the gender binary and not the other, and why it is so profitable for the wealthiest elite to keep that to keep it that way. But to wrap this all up, let's return to Ruth in our story, the agony. The sacrifice, the risk, the suffering, Ruth is the backbone of Naomi's and the peoples of Judah's redemption. Ruth, the foreign-born female servant, the inferior other, is literally the means in which the poor childless widow, powerful owner of land and labor in the community, claim their place in the prestigious lineage of King David. It was Ruth's physical and mental faculties that were spent in the fields. It was Ruth's reproductive organs that were sent to Boaz late that night. And it was Ruth's reproductive power that birthed Obed. The son born to Naomi, the heir of Boaz, the ancestor of Judah's future king, David. Might we be able to imagine a world in which legitimately vulnerable people like Naomi are not compelled to gain access to the means of survival um, uh, and the restoration into the community by using people worse off than them? In a world where communities like Judah are not incentivized to build their future on the backs of groups or individuals who are excluded and othered and made inferior, a world where people and wealth... uh, 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 where power and wealth is not concentrated into the hands of a few. Boaz is actually contrary to what we've been taught about him. The labor of social reproduction doesn't have to be imposed on some people and not on others. It doesn't have to be devalued and seen as insignificant and uh, definitely doesn't have to remain hidden and privatized in an alternative way of being in relationship with others is possible. In fact, the liberation of the vast majority of the people, the redemption, not just of one people, but of all creation depends on our joining God in the work of remaking, reforming, and reorganizing our communal way of relating to the work of reproduction. But first, we have to come to value and appreciate and respect the people in the labor that capitalism would not have as valuable. So folks, thanks again for listening. Um, for those of you who just engage with me through social media and blah, 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 uh, I wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for you guys. So thank you for listening um, and for working and for believing that an alternative world is possible. Um, burn Babylon down.